past week, I went uh, shopping for some various items, one of which was a remote control mouse for my computer, a presenter's mouse, they call it. It has a built-in um, laser pointer, and it enables you to uh, operate your, your computer from a distance, so you can use it for PowerPoint presentations, things like that. And uh, so I, I bought one, and it looked like it would be really simple to use. All you need to do is plug this little thing in the back of your computer and turn the mouse on, and, and off you go. So I did that, but it didn't work. So I did it again, and it didn't work. And then I did it again, and it didn't work. And, and so uh, finally, I took out the instructions, <laughs> and I decided to follow the directions. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing thing. When you do that, there was this little step that I had missed each time along the way. And when I did the proper steps and the proper sequence, then I, it properly installed itself and the device works just fine. And uh, that's like the Christian life, I think. After conversion, there are, um, there are steps that we must take. Certain steps that we must take to enable us to live like a Christian. And a couple of weeks ago, we uh, looked, at a couple, looked at two of those, and tonight we're going to look at three more. As you open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews 13, we are closing in on the end of this book, too. Maybe the rapture will come, huh? Wouldn't that be neat? Yeah. We are closing in on the end of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews 13 tonight, and uh, verses 7 through 17... Let me read those uh, verses for you as we get started together. Our title is Living Like a Christian. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who are thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. There are five in this passage, I believe, five necessary steps that we must take in order to live like a Christian. They are given to us here, and I put them into your handout for you. We looked uh, two weeks ago at the first two of these, verses 7 and 8. The first one is that we must duplicate godly role models. The apostle writing here to them says, Remember those 
who were once with you, who spoke the word to you, that is your leaders, your, your elders, your pastors, and consider their lives. Take a look, a long, hard look at their lives and, and notice how they have followed Christ and then arrange your lives in a way to imitate that. Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. And so that is the apostles' admonition to them, to these these Palestinian Christians, these Jewish Christians here, is to remember those who were first among you and to order your life like theirs. Imitate, duplicate the godly role models that were among you. And then we noticed in verse 9 the second necessary step, and that was that we must dodge bad doctrine. Here it says that you, uh, you're strengthened by grace. You're to avoid being carried away. Apostle Paul uses the same terminology in Ephesians 4. We're to be, avoid being carried away by varied and strange teachings. For the heart is to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. And we spent a long time talking about legalism two weeks ago and, and the many different ways that we can be drawn into to, uh, such um, false teaching, really, that would equate spirituality and godliness with a set of do's and don'ts, regulations that we might impose upon ourselves. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that we walk in the Christian faith. And so that leads us really tonight into the three that I want to explore with you in greater detail. The third necessary step being in verses 10 through 14, and that is we must discard the old ways. We must discard the old ways. Now, we're going to have to think a little bit on this in verses 10 through 14 and, and uh, see how the argument develops. This, uh, this verse 10 is a, um, is a difficult verse to interpret hermeneutically. There are a number of, of possibilities on this verse. It says, uh, and it begins with the we in verse 10. We have an altar. And the question that first arises is, who are the we that he's talking about? One of the uh, common ways to understand this is that the, the we is, is, means we Christians. That we Christians have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, that is the Levitical priests, have no right to eat. And the, as this interpretation goes, the altar is, is a reference uh, to either Christ or perhaps His cross or some sort of combination of the two. And the, the force of that interpretation is, is that the Levitical system is cut off from Christ. We Christians have an altar, that is Jesus Christ, from which those who are left under the old system, who serve the tabernacle, have no right to eat. That is a, it is a popular understanding of that verse. But I, I've become persuaded over the week here as I've worked on this that there is another better way to understand these verses. And so let me... Let me share that with you. I think the way to unlock the verse 10 is really to, to take a look at verse 11. I think verse 11 explains what's going on in verse 10. And, and we'll notice that uh, verse 11, grammatically, it begins with a four. And uh, that may not mean much to you, but it's uh, in the Greek it, it means something. It's what's called an explanatory gar or translated for or since. And what it does is it, it indicates that verse 11 is an explanation of what has just gone before it or previous to it. And so that verse 11 really is a, an explanation of verse 10. And so 
if we are to, to uh, follow that train of thought, then what's going on here is there is a, a reference in verse 11 that, that helps unlock the meaning of verse 10. Verse 11 is clear. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. And so it's talking about the Old Testament ritual. The Old Testament ritual, which serves as an illustration to, to uh, reinforce the point that's really being made in verse 10. If that's true, if that's a proper way to understand this, then then really, verse 10, the we is referring not to we Christians, but to we Jews. We Jews in our, in our national heritage, our national practice. Again, remember, the original recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians. Not Gentile Christians, but Jewish Christians. And so I think what the apostle is saying is that, that we Jews have an altar from as part of our, our heritage, our our are the way we've been brought up. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. You have to stop and you have to think on that for a moment. Because as you remember your Old Testament, as you read through it and, and contemplate it, that the Levitical priesthood received their, their support from the offerings of the people, right? When the people would bring their sacrifices then the, the Levitical priests, after the portion was sacrificed to God, they got what was left over. Isn't that right? That's where they got their meat. It came from, through the sacrificial system. And that was generally how, the way, how it operated, except for a few specific exceptions. And I think as we unpack those exceptions, we'll really this whole section, verses 10 through 14, will drop open for us. Specifically, we're told in Leviticus 4, and I'm not going to turn you all there. You can write these down and check them on your own if you'd like. But in Leviticus 4, verses 3 through 7, it clearly tells us that, that the sin offering made by the priest, that is, for his own sin, could not be shared by the other priest. So if a priest sinned, and then he had to bring a, a sin offering... The, his fellow priest could not eat of it. It had to be completely destroyed. It was unavailable to the rest of the priesthood. Secondly, if the whole congregation sinned, and that's in uh, Leviticus 4, 13 through 21, if there was a congregational sin, and so there was a sin offering brought to atone for that, that was also unavailable for the priesthood to partake of. But it is the third exception that I believe is really what's behind the apostles' words here. And that is, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer a blood sacrifice, a, a bull, the blood of a bull for himself and then the blood of a goat for the people. And then the carcasses of those sacrifices were had to be taken outside the camp and had to be completely burned and completely consumed with fire. They were unavailable for the people to eat. That one-time annual sacrifice was the Day of Atonement. It was the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement. And I think that's what's going on here. I think that's exactly what he has in mind. So, again, looking at verse 10, he says, We Jews, as part of our national heritage, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, that is, the Levitical priests, have no right to eat. And what he's talking about, when he talks about an altar here, he's talking about the sacrifice that goes on that altar 
And what he's saying is there is a sacrifice for which nobody can partake. Nobody gets the the meat benefit of that sacrifice, and that sacrifice is the one made on the Day of Atonement. Verse 11 again, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place, right? The holy of holies by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Leviticus 16, verse 27 is very, very specific about that. That the carcasses of the, of the bull and of the goat have to be consumed outside the camp. They have to be burned, fully consumed in fire outside the camp. And the other thing that is important to note is that the, the burning of those animal carcasses was not part of the sacrifice. It was not part of the, of the sacrifice itself. It was the pouring out of their blood upon the, uh, sprinkled upon the Holy of Holies, inside the Holy of Holies, that was the sacrifice. The, the consumption of their carcasses by fire was really just a picture of the removal of sin from the people. It pointed out that sin was disgraceful, sin was disgusting, sin was distasteful, and sin had to be removed as far as possible away from you, and it had to be completely exterminated. We know that it was not part of the actual sacrifice itself, because if it was, it would have been consumed on the brazen altar itself. So the point he's making here for these people, if I can paraphrase it for you, is that we Jews in our national heritage have an altar upon which at certain times the Levites are not allowed to eat. On the Day of Atonement, the blood of the bull is poured out for the priest and the blood of the goat is poured out for the people, but none of their flesh may be eaten. It is instead burned outside the camp because sin's defiling effect must be removed. So with that background, that background that was very much a part of the heritage and culture of the very people that he's writing to, he will now make and apply his point, verse 12. Therefore, you see it? Therefore, because of this reality that you all know so, so dearly, so intimately, you've all been brought up in this system. It's alien to us. It's difficult for us to imagine the idea of, of killing these animals, pouring out their blood is so foreign to us. But for them, it was so much a part of who they had been, who, how they were raised. This was part of their heritage. And he says, therefore, in light of all of that and your understanding of the Day of Atonement, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. The apostle here is, is applying the force of the illustration to Jesus Christ, and he is pointing out that Christ is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement ritual. This is not the first time, by the way, in Hebrews that the, uh, the writer here, the apostle, the apostolic writer, we don't know who he is, but whoever he may have been, alludes to Jesus in conjunction with the Day of Atonement. Chapter 7, verse 27, chapter 9, verse 7, verse 25, chapter 10, Verses 1 and 3, the illusion of the Day of Atonement and how that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ runs through this book like a thread. And so he's saying to them, Jesus, He is the one. It is Jesus' sufferings, it is Jesus' death on the cross that ultimately cleanses His people and sets them apart to God, removing their guilt he sanctified us by expiating our sin, by consuming 
the guilt of our sin by wiping it out. Just like the burning of the animal carcass illustrates the wiping out of the effect of sin and all of its disgrace and all of its defilement. Beloved, Jesus Christ died a disgraceful death. He died a disgusting death. He died a death that vividly illustrates how vile sin really is. The scripture tells us, it's very clear, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. The apostle Paul picks it up himself in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 and says, Jesus became our curse for us. His, his death on that cross was a, was a disgusting, despicable kind of death. It was a death of a one who would atone for the sin of his people. Hence, verse 13, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Do you see that? Notice, by the way, that he reverts. Originally, he says uh, Jesus suffered outside the gate. That's a historical statement. Jesus suffered just outside the gate of Jerusalem, right on the hill of Golgotha, so that right by the main thoroughfare, so that all who were coming by could see this one, right? Do you remember Pilate had the sign written in three different languages so that everybody came by could see what had gone on here? Jesus suffered just outside the gate. But applying the force of it, verse 13, he says, let us go outside to him or go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. It's not just that they have to, that these people have to just leave Jerusalem. They have to leave Judaism altogether. And so when he says they have to go outside the camp, it's outside the camp of Judaism. That's his point. He's saying, come out from among them. Leave Judaism and its rituals behind. Jesus died the death of a common criminal. He died a death of reproach to all who looked upon him without the benefit of spiritual comprehension. All they saw was a, was a broken man who had died a tragic and disgusting death. The death of the lowest of common criminals. The Apostle Paul says, or Apostle whoever he is, says to us here, maybe it was, huh? He said, let us go outside the camp to him, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. If we profess to follow him, we are obligated to share his shame. If we profess to follow him, we are obligated to share his shame. Beloved, Jesus had been rejected by Judaism. They had literally rejected him through their leadership as they called for his crucifixion. They had symbolically rejected him by the very fact that he suffered outside the city gates. It's analogous here to the, to the sin offering that had to be burned outside of the camp. Jesus Christ suffered in shame, and if we follow him, we are called to shame as well. The big question is, were these people, these early believers, were they willing to actually join Jesus outside the camp? Were they willing to accept his reproach? 
as they faced rejection from family, from friends, from relatives, business associates, the community at large. Were they willing to discard the old ways for Christ? Again, there are very, very few of us, probably none of us in this room, who have ever seriously suffered for our attachment to Jesus Christ. By this time, by the time this epistle is written, sometime shortly before A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem, by the time this epistle has been written, the breach between Judaism and Christianity or the way, perhaps it was, it was, uh, as it was called in its early days, has been full and irreparable. Even back when Jesus was still walking and, and teaching amongst them, the Pharisees had decided that anyone who followed him would be put out of the synagogue. Do you remember that? I think it's John 9 that talks about the man who confessed Christ and was put out of the synagogue. Beloved, to be put out of the synagogue is to be cut off from Jewish life. The synagogue is the center of, of all of your life. It is the place where your, your relatives meet. It is the, it is the place of, of um, social discourse. It is the place of fellowship. It is the place of business transactions. It is the very center piece of your whole life. And so to be cut off from the synagogue is to be cut off from life as you know it. None of us coming to Jesus Christ have lost our job in the process, and been unable to, to buy or sell. None of us, by coming to Jesus Christ, have, have their families have had a funeral, or at least the best that I know, none of your families have had a funeral for you. None of your families have so cut you off that they refuse to speak to you any longer. None of you have had property seized because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. But, beloved, you know, around the world those things happen. Those things happen and more. We here in America, it is hard for us to understand these things. We're living in a bubble. It's the only conclusion that I can draw is that we are living in a bubble. How long the bubble lasts, I don't know. It's gone on for a long time, admittedly. But someday, I believe the bubble will break. And we will be called upon to make public commitment to Jesus Christ, a commitment that, that will be costly. A commitment that will cost us to, to, to decide, are we willing to go outside the camp bearing his reproach? These folks had a very attractive lifestyle they were turning away from. This is what they had been brought up with. They had a physical worship center. Right? They had a place to go that was beautiful. It was Herod's temple. They'd been working on it for decades. It was gorgeous. And all the pomp and pageantry of the Levitical system was there for them. It was all they knew. They had very visible priests that they could interact with. There were tangible sacrifices being offered. There were the ancestral traditions that had come down to them over the centuries and centuries of time. They were being called to chuck it all. To throw it all away. No more physical worship place. No more place to go to worship God. No place to go to meet Him. No longer a visible priesthood, right? Their high priest now resides in glory. No more tangible sacrifices. A complete repudiation of their ancestral traditions. There is a lot on the line here. 
There is a lot on the line. So if they are to go outside the camp bearing his reproach, there's got to be something in it for them. Verse 14, here it is. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. It's not easy to cast aside all of that stuff. But like Abraham, right? Hebrews chapter 11. They had to recognize that they were strangers and they, they were aliens on earth. Hebrews eleven thirteen. They had to recognize that, that there was no lasting city, no permanent associations for them here on earth, but rather they had to fix their eyes on the world to come. That's the secret. You have to lift your eyes from the horizons to look heavenward upon the age to come. You need to live as strangers and aliens. You need to be willing to suffer for Jesus Christ because your citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven. That is what would motivate one. That is what would motivate one to leave it all behind, right? To discard the old ways. Now, what about us? How does this work for us? I mean, we're not drawn to that. There is no attraction whatsoever to that. So, again, the question you have to ask yourself is, you know, is this, is this just historically interesting or is there some point of application for us here? How does the word of the living God apply to us here? What old ways must you and I discard? Well, let me suggest some possibilities for you and you can make further application yourself. One is habits. Perhaps there are habits that need to go in your life. Old habits that you picked up along the way that were comfortable for you. But now that you have come to Jesus Christ, those old habits belong to the old life and they've got to go. They've got to go. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe there are old relationships that are still hanging on. Perhaps pagan friends from the old days who drag you down when you were around them. Maybe it's old girlfriends or boyfriends. Whatever it might be, whatever those relationships are that belong to the past, that are dragging you down in the present, those have to go. Maybe it's a change of your lifestyle. The way that you spend your time, right? The way you order your priorities. There was a, a way you once lived before Jesus Christ, and now with Christ, the old has to go. You've got to discard it, and you've got to live a new way. Some of those old habits, those old lifestyle choices, they need to go. You know what they are. You can think back. You know those things that are still kind of hanging on, that you need to put away. Maybe it's religious ritual. Maybe for some of you, you have come out of Roman Catholicism. Maybe you've come out of Roman Catholicism and it's prayers to the saints. Some of those old rituals, those things have to go. There's no room for that now. That must be put away. You must discard the old, follow after Christ and the new. Maybe it's your worldview. Maybe it just needs to be completely reoriented. 
What a tremendous opportunity, right? (laughs) I can say more by saying nothing. You know, worldview is huge. It's just huge. It is the lens through which you see reality. It is the grid through which you process truth. Beloved, I was just listening the other day and and, uh, some statistics was saying 85% of the people in America who claim to be born again think that there is more than one way to heaven. You hear what I just said? 85% of the people who claim to be born again believe that there is more than one way to heaven. That is a worldview that is bankrupt. It's got to go. It has got to go. Truth is under assault all around us. And to one degree or another, we've all drunk from the poisoned well. We must discard these old ways. We must go outside the camp to Jesus Christ and we must be willing to bear His shame and reproach. To raise your hand in the middle of class when the teacher is waxing eloquent with some foolishness about there being no such thing as truth. You need to challenge them respectfully, but you need to challenge them with such a false worldview and suffer the scorn and the shame of your professor and your classmates. You need to be willing to, to, when you're together in the office and you're around the water cooler and you're talking about politics or issues of life or whatever, you need to make a stand for righteousness and be thought a fool for Jesus Christ. I know, it's easy to keep your mouth shut, right? Just let it pass. Don't want to get into it with them. You don't want them to think you're some kind of crazy Bible-thumping fanatic, but that's what you are. So you might as well live like it. It's hard to bear his shame, to bear his reproach. It's going to get harder. It's going to get harder. Right now, we're thought just a fool. Someday we may have to suffer more intensity, more intensely than that. So we've got to discard these old ways. Fourth, fourth, we must devote ourselves to worship. Verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, he says. He's talking here about worship. And he lists three types of Christian sacrifice or worship. He talks about praise, that is worship of the tongue. He talks about doing good deeds, that is worship of the hands. And he talks about sharing, that is worship of the heart. So let's kind of unpack this. Through him, that is through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ, not through Levitical rituals, can the true worshipers come to God. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. It is the fruit of our lips that bring praise to God. It is our tongue by which and through which we praise Him. As we confess with thanksgiving for what God has done in Christ. By putting away our sin and making us right before Him. Jesus Christ Himself said, Matthew 12, verse 34, that what comes out of the mouth is a mere overflow of the heart. What comes out of your mouth is what is flowing around in your heart. 
Now, this expression here is fascinating. It's, it's packed. It's loaded where it talks about the fruit of lips. It actually comes from Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. There, literally, the Hebrew says, bulls of our lips or calves of our lips. God is not interested in the, in the sacrifice of a bull or a calf slain on a material altar. What he's after or interested in is the sacrifice of praise that comes from lips devoted to him. So the fruit of the lips or the calf of our lips is our praise offered to God. Why do we sing? Why do we sing together? Well, one of the reasons clearly is it because it gives us a way corporately to express the fruit of our lips of praise to God, right? We sing back to Him His praises for what He has done. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says we are to be thankful continually, right? Be thankful in everything. We are to make it our habit. Make it our habit of being thankful to God. Just go around thanking God. Just thanking God all the time. Get used to it because you're going to spend eternity doing it. So you might as well get a head start on it now, right? Just cultivate a thankful heart and express your thankfulness to God. The praise of our lips, the fruit of our lips, our tongues offered in sacrifice and worship. Secondly, is our hands. Do not neglect doing good. Do not neglect doing good. He says, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. He's reminding us here of the importance of benevolence. The importance of benevolence to, to others. This Greek word, doing good, is, appears only here in the New Testament. It's not, it's not used even in the Septuagint. So it's, it's difficult to, to, to go anywhere for further elaboration. But I think we've got a comparative thought for us over in James 127, where it says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's the idea of doing good for others. Being involved in people's lives. That it's a good thing that you're around. Actively with your hands. Third, it's sharing. It's sharing. It is the heart the word sharing is uh, koinonias. Koinonias, it's, it's, uh, it's used frequently in the New Testament. comes over to us as koinonia, right? Translated fellowship most frequently. And it has the basic idea of participation or, or sharing in a community. And also the meaning can be translated in a more general sense of, of a contribution or a gift. Romans 15, 26. It's actually a money gift and it's called koinonia. Fellowship. In this context here, it's, it's, it's the overflow of our heart working itself out in the very practical ways. Sharing with others. Doing good to them. Sharing with them. These are the sacrifices with which God is pleased. The worship wars. That's the term that people coin for the problems that occur in churches frequently over the use of music. It seems like music is most often the flashpoint within, at least within the America and perhaps even in the parts of Western Europe. I'm not sure about that, but it's sort of the flashpoint within a church. Different musical styles, different preferences. 
It creates problems within the church, right? Minor disagreements to sometimes rather explosive and open warfare. But how much of this conflict could be avoided if participants were to take seriously these admonitions here, verses 15 and 16? Right? If we were to focus on the praise of our tongue and the good deeds of our hands and the expression of our heart's love to people in worship, that would go a long way towards cooling the fires. You know, the church doesn't belong to us. You know that? You know, this is not our church. I know that that expression slips in frequently. Maybe it's something we should um, <clears throat> work on knocking out of our vocabulary. Right? It's not my church. It's not the elders' church. It's not your church. It's not our church. Whose church is it? It's God's church. It's God's church. And because it's God's church, He, he is the one who prescribes the proper and acceptable means of worship. He says that it is the fruit of our lips offered in praise. It is the work of our hands and our hearts in good deeds and sharing. We must devote ourselves to these kinds of worship, this kind of worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the, the great love chapter, right, that appears in so many wedding ceremonies and has nothing to do with weddings. Right? It occurs right in the middle of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, which is one of the most, uh, you know, longest sections where the apostle deals with spiritual giftedness and the misuse of spiritual giftedness and the way the church at Corinth was divided and divisive over all of that spiritual giftedness. And the apostle Paul says, love is the issue. Love is the issue. Beloved, that's how we will avoid the worship wars is if we love one another. In fruit of lips offered in praise and thanksgiving to his name, doing good one to another, caring and sharing for each other. And that takes us to our fifth necessary step tonight. We must defer to our leaders. We must defer to our leaders. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. There are really three aspects to this single point. There are commands to be obeyed here. There are controls that God puts in place. And there are consequences for failure to obey those commands. So let's kind of look at it under that basis. Let's look first at the commands. He exhorts them with a kind of a twofold command here. Right? Verse 17. It is to obey and submit. Do you see it? It is to obey your leaders and submit to them. It is a difficult thing to do to obey and submit. We all struggle with it to one degree or another. But the spiritual health of a church is, is entirely linked to their willingness to do this. What does it mean to obey? Patho is the Greek verb, and it means assenting to another person's direction. Listening to or following them would be a good translation. It is to get in line with them, follow them, obey them, and then submit to them. 
And that involves the idea of, of yielding your contrary opinion in favor of somebody else's. This verb includes the idea of yielding, giving way before, or deferring. These are very active verbs. And the, fo- the force together of these two imperatives that form this, these commands or this single command with two parts, however you want to look at it, is that the, that the Christian community, the individual local fellowship, is to be responsive to their leaders. They are to yield to their authority. They are to subordinate themselves to them even when they have a different opinion. Spirit of obedience, spirit of submission to authority is fundamental to Christian living. It is absolutely fundamental to Christian living. Turn back to, uh, to Romans chapter 13. Art took us to the end of chapter 12, but notice how chapter 13 begins. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In the context here of Romans, he's talking about civil authority, right? And he's saying that the civil authority, the government, is an establishment by God. But you are to yield to it. And by yielding to it, you are yielding to God. The idea that you can follow Jesus Christ and, and live with a spirit of independence is contrary to what the New Testament says. We are to be a submissive people. The fruit of the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18 and following, is a spirit of humility and submission and faith. It's the mark of a Spirit-filled life. And the heart of submission, really, beloved, reveals the heart of a person. Someone who is submissive to authorities that God has placed in their life whether it be your parents or your husband or your boss or the government or the church leadership, demonstrates a heart of submission to God Himself. And one who resists these God-ordained authorities is one who is resisting the very authority of God. It's a serious deal. To reject authority is to reject God. Again, back to Hebrews 13, 17. The commands are very, very serious. Obey and submit, it says. Yield before them. And by the way, this seems to be most difficult, if I'm reading the New Testament correctly, for young men. This seems to be a particularly difficult thing for young men to do. 1 Peter 5.5 pulls them out of the crowd and says to the young men, Submit to your elders. Now, lest you think I'm only picking on those who are in their late teens and early 20s, let me let you, you know, inform you quickly that young men biblically can run right up into their 40s. Okay, so all you 30 and 40-year-olds that are having trouble submitting, that's because you're young men too. It's interesting, uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 18, that's uh, after Solomon died, right? His son uh, Rehoboam, you remember that? 
And Rehoboam, he, he, uh, he goes and he, he uh, appears before the people. And if he will just grant them a little bit of what they request, they'll say they'll follow him. And that's what the elders recommend that he does, right? But he, instead, he listens to the young men brought up in the palace with him. And by the way, uh, he's 41 years old. Rehoboam is, okay? And he listens to the young men brought up with him, and he goes back and he tells them basically, hey, you think my father was tough? You ain't seen nothing yet. And the kingdom is torn from his hand. Young men seem to have great difficulty in the area of submission. I guess you call it the arrogance of youth, huh? But the commands are very clear. It is to obey and it is to submit. Now, is this unconditional? What about, and you can start clicking them off, what about those, uh, you know, those fellas, right? Well, there are some controls. There are some God-given controls. So let's, let's take a look at them. There are actually three of them. There were three of them. They are plurality, accountability, and character. How's that? Plurality, accountability, and character. Let's start with character. That's the easiest to deal with first. And for that, you have to go back to verse 7. Remember those who led you, right? Spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. There is a certain character requirement in order to be a leader. Biblically, at least. And so there, there, you are called to, to obey, to submit to your leadership, but they are, it is a presupposition that they are godly leaders. That they are godly leaders. Beyond that, notice that it says, obey your leaders, plural. Do you see that? Look at verse 17. You are to obey your leaders, plural. It is not a one-man show. There is a plurality of leadership, a plurality of elders. There is not, it is not the pastor's church. He is not the one who, who is the pope who makes all the decisions or the king or, or whatever other figure you want to draw it is a plurality. The congregation is protected by the fact that there is a group of spirit-called, spirit-qualified men. Plurality. You know, one man, no matter how godly they might be, one man in leadership alone of the church of God, one man with feet of clay, is a dangerous situation. There needs to be that perspective of a group of men, where there can be strong differences of opinion, different giftedness, different ways of coming at a problem. Some are, some are hard. They want to you know, go right in there and go hard at it. And others are more merciful. And they say, ah, let's, let's wait more. And you, you work it together until you arrive at a, a God-honoring answer. So there is the plurality, character, plurality. And finally, there is accountability. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Do you see that? As those who will give an account. Those are frightening words. Those are frightening words. As a leader in the church of God, there is a reckoning coming. Pastor Vince taught this morning on James 3, right? Let not many of you become teachers. Why? Because you will incur a stricter judgment. I think I said this morning, people say, you know, what size is your church? Well, how many people do you want to give an account for? 
How many do you want to stand before God for? And make an account for their souls. Do you see that? They keep watch over your souls. And they will give an account. To be a leader in the church of God, to be an elder in the church of God is a very sobering thing. The responsibility to keep watch over another man's soul is huge. And the stakes are high because how you do it you will then answer to Christ for. He said, let them do it with joy and not with grief. Let them do it with joy and not with grief. Notice, by the way, that there's no choice. They have to do it. Do you see that? They still have to do it. Whether they receive joy in it or grief or groaning, be another way to translate that, they still have to do it. They're still responsible to do it. The church can make the elder's job a joyful one by responding in obedience and submission, praying for them, encouraging them. Or the church can make their life miserable. The complaining of the nation of Israel almost broke Moses. Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 and following. Moses says, kill me rather than continue to make me lead these people. More than one elder pastor has prayed that kind of prayer. God, kill me. You know, the Apostle Paul at times was so depressed by what was going on in the churches and the heartache, in particular the Corinthian assembly. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. He says in one place he had a, a wide open door for effective ministry and, and he was so depressed by what was going on in Corinth that he, he couldn't even take advantage of it and he just walked on by. That's the great Apostle Paul, right? The fearless warrior of God. He had been so beaten down in his spirit by that church at Corinth that when he had an opportunity to share Christ, an effective opportunity to share Christ, and he, he didn't have it in him to do it. But notice what he says here. He says, let him do it with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. Recalcitrant church members make elders' jobs difficult and cause them to groan over their rebellion. But in the end, it is the rebels themselves who will groan. In the end, it is the rebels themselves who will groan. This word unprofitable, by the way, this is a rhetorical device. It's called a litotes. And it's a, it's a literary device in, in which an affirmative is expressed by the negation of it, the opposite. So, for an example, if someone said, this is no small problem, what would they be communicating? This is a big problem. Okay, that's what's going on here. The fuller meaning of what he is communicating here, and he, and he does it, he uses this literary device to cause you to stop and pause and think. The idea here is unprofitable, is it's disastrous. This thing will be disastrous for you. In a church that's in rebellion against its leadership, it's a disaster. It's an it's an unmitigated disaster. It, it has no witness or testimony for Jesus Christ. It's nothing but a war zone. Why in the world would an unbeliever want to come to Christ if that's what it looks like? 
I'd rather stay a pagan. It's huge. It's just a huge issue. And in the context, beloved, here originally of this epistle, the obedience and submission to leadership is those who are leading them out of Judaism, out of the past. They're to obey them. They're to submit to them because they will give an account to God. Well, he's given us five necessary steps here, right? Duplicate godly role models, dodge bad doctrine, discard the old ways, devote ourselves to worship, and defer to our leadership. These are the These are the necessary steps of Christian living. This is following the installation directions so they get the desired result on the back end. Huh? Let's pray. Our Father God, I thank you for Foothill Bible Church. Not the buildings, Lord, for that is not the church, but for the people. And I thank you for their heart of love for you and their obedient, submissive spirit to you, which manifests itself in their obedient and submissive spirit to the leadership that you have placed over them. Our Father, I pray for the elders, for all of us, Lord, who will give account someday. What a responsibility that is. Lord, help us not to take that lightly. I pray you would continue to bless us in our relationship within the body and that you would cause us to grow in love one for another that our tongues would be united in praise and thanksgiving to you, that the work of our hands and our hearts in doing good and sharing with one another would be a manifestation of the love of Christ within us. I pray, our Father, that the old ways that that hang on like a a burden that needs to be jettisoned, that you would enable us to do that, that we might run the race for Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to duplicate the godly role models that you have placed in all of our lives. And Lord God, I pray that you would enable this fellowship to dodge the bad doctrine out there that would seek to sink us. Lord God, we need your spirit among us that he might sanctify us and grow us in grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.